Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is funded by you, not by the weapons manufacturers when we cover war or gun violence, not by the oil, gas, coal or nuclear companies when we cover the climate catastrophe. If you believe in the power of independent media, please make your donation today of $5 or $10 or $5 or $10 a month or any amount at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference, especially because generous donors are matching your contribution dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! At least 52 protesters were arrested in London during the coronation of King Charles III. We'll look at the protests and calls from groups in former British colonies for the king to pay reparations and apologize for Britain's legacy of genocide and colonization. Then the U.S. Supreme Court temporarily stays the execution of Richard Glossop in Oklahoma. We'll speak to his spiritual advisor, Sister Helen Prejean. You saw such a quick decision by the Supreme Court to stay in execution and grant this man cert. I had never seen anything like it. Plus, we look at growing calls for new ethics rules for Supreme Court justices as more information emerges about Clarence Thomas's secret financial dealings with Republican billionaire GOP activist Harlan Crow. But we'll begin the show in Brownsville, Texas, where eight people have died after an SUV plowed into a group of people near a migrant shelter. Most of the dead are reportedly men from Venezuela. At least one witness reported the driver gestured at and insulted migrants as his car plowed into them. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Texas, a man armed with a semi-automatic rifle killed eight people and injured seven others Saturday at a suburban shopping mall outside Dallas before he was shot dead by a police officer. Hospitals treated victims as young as five, as old as 61. Among the dead were Christian Lacour, a 20-year-old security guard at the mall, and Ashwarya Tatikanda, a 27-year-old engineer from India whose fiancé was injured and had two bullets removed from his body. One young boy was found alive beneath the body of his mother, who died protecting him. Over a hundred spent shell casings were recovered from the scene. Authorities haven't yet cited a motive, but are investigating whether the 33-year-old gunman had ties to white supremacist groups. He wore tactical gear and a patch on his chest, reading RWDS for Right Wing Death Squad, a slogan popular among neo-Nazis. As Texas Governor Greg Abbott spoke Sunday at a prayer vigil in Allen, protesters outside demanded reforms to gun laws. Meanwhile, in Brownsville, Texas, eight people were killed, at least 10 others injured, Sunday after an SUV plowed into a group of pedestrians near a shelter for migrants and unhoused people not far from the U.S.-Mexico border. The driver was treated for injuries and arrested for reckless driving, though is likely to face additional charges. Investigators say the driver is refusing to identify himself as not cooperating with their probe and to whether the killings were intentional. At least one witness reported the driver gestured at and insulted 
migrants as his car plowed into them. An unidentified witness reflected on the journey taken by migrants who were injured in the crash. We hope they will recover because they have families far away who count on them. We crossed mountains, marched, and passed migration. It was a long way to come here, and we fought hard. The ACLU of Texas noted the crash followed weeks of escalating anti-immigrant policymaking by Texas lawmakers. And while the Biden administration considers imposing a new ban on the right to seek asylum in the U.S. when the Trump-era Title 42 policy ends May 11th. In a statement, the ACLU added, quote, President Biden, Texas Governor Abbott and other elected officials continue to spread fear about immigration instead of treating the needs of people crossing the border as a humanitarian matter, unquote. We'll speak with attorney Jennifer Harbury. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers shot and killed two more Palestinian men Saturday, both 22 years old, during a raid on a refugee camp near the city of Tulkarim. Elsewhere in the West Bank, Israeli forces demolished a Palestinian elementary school in the village of Jabet al-Dib near Bethlehem Sunday. The European Union, which funded the school, condemned its destruction and called on Israel to halt all demolitions and evictions. This is student Mohammed Ibrahim. We got ready to come to school, and when we arrived, we didn't find this school. We want a school today. We want to study. If the Israeli forces will keep demolishing, we will keep building. We want to study at our school. It was a nice school. We want another one. Here in the United States, Minnesota Democratic Congress member Betty McCollum reintroduced a bill Friday that would bar USAID to Israel from being used to detain Palestinian children, as well as military activities that lead to, quote, further unilateral annexation, unquote, of the occupied West Bank. The bill is backed by 17 Democrats. Meanwhile, the World Food Program says it'll suspend food aid to over 200,000 Palestinians starting next month because of funding shortages. Russian drone strikes rain down on Kyiv and other parts of Ukraine overnight. Kyiv's mayor says over 30 drones targeting the capital were shot down. Over the weekend, Ukraine also said it downed a Russian hypersonic missile for the first time using the U.S. Patriot missile defense system. Russia has evacuated over 1,600 people around the beleaguered Zaporizhia nuclear power plant ahead of an expected Ukrainian counteroffensive. And as the U.N. nuclear watchdog warned, the situation at the plant is potentially dangerous. Meanwhile, the leader of Russian mercenary force Wagner Group has backtracked on his threat to withdraw from the war-torn city of Bakhmut after he said the Russian military agreed to send more ammunition. Ukraine has accused Russia of using white phosphorus bombs in Bakhmut, which would constitute a war crime. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, over 400 people were killed and entire villages were wiped away after torrential rains Thursday led rivers to burst their banks in South Kivu province. A head of a local civil society organization said his group is appealing for whatever help they can get, as many people have lost everything. People are sleeping out in the open. There are schools that have been washed away. We do not know how our students will study. There are hospitals that have been taken away. The tragedy comes just days after floods killed at least 136 people in neighboring Rwanda. While visiting the region, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres offered his condolences and said, quote, this is yet another illustration of accelerating climate change and its disastrous impact on countries that have done nothing to contribute to global warming, unquote. During his talk in Burundi, Guterres also called for a halt to violence in the DRC. 
I renew my call for de-escalation, appeasement, and restraint of armed groups, whether local or foreign. They must lay down their arms in the DRC. In the northeastern Indian state of Manipur, near Burma and Bangladesh, as many as 55 people have been killed, hundreds more injured, tens of thousands have fled since fighting broke out between two ethnic groups last Wednesday. The clashes were triggered by a dispute over the state's largest ethnic group, which is seeking a special tribal designation that would grant members certain benefits, including access to colleges, government jobs and elected positions. Members of the Arab League moved to readmit Syria after 12 years of suspension during a meeting in Cairo Sunday. It's the latest push to reestablish ties between Arab nations and Damascus after Syria's Arab League membership was revoked in 2011 following President Bashar al-Assad's violent crackdown on protesters that drove Syria into a devastating civil war, killing an estimated half million people and displacing millions more. This is Ahmed Aboulgate, Secretary General of the Arab League. The return of Syria is the beginning of a movement, not an end. The direction of the resolution to the crisis in Syria will take time for procedures to be implemented, and it will be gradual. The task of this committee is to follow up on those procedures. Also, it is not a decision to resume relationships between Arab states and Syria. This is a sovereign decision left for every country to take on its own. In Chile? Right-wing parties have won a majority of seats on a 50-member commission tasked with rewriting the nation's Pinochet-era constitution. Sunday's vote was another defeat for President Gabriel Boric, after voters last September rejected a proposed progressive constitution that would have expanded rights for indigenous peoples and abortion seekers, guaranteed universal health care, and addressed the climate crisis. In Britain, thousands of guests packed into Westminster Abbey Saturday to witness the coronation of King Charles. Outside the ceremony, police cracked down on protesters, arresting at least 52 people. Activists from the anti-monarchy group Republic say their leader and other members were detained even before they started protesting. Environmentalists with Just Stop Oil and other groups were also arrested. Demonstrators condemned laws suppressing public protest, the monarchy's colonial history and its anti-democratic nature. Our intention is to show that there is a Republican movement in the UK, and it is growing every single day. The trends show more and more people dislike the monarchy and want an elected head of state or no head of state or a democratic alternative to what we have now. Back in the United States, the Supreme Court Friday granted an indefinite stay of execution for Oklahoma prisoner Richard Glossop, who'd been scheduled to be put to death May 18th. This comes after Oklahoma's Republican attorney general and Glossop's defense team filed a joint motion to halt the execution. Glossop has maintained his innocence in the 1997 murder for hire for the past quarter century. Later in the show, we'll talk to his spiritual advisor, Sister Helen Prejean. In Washington, D.C., Peter Schwartz, a Pennsylvania man who pepper-sprayed officers and threw a chair at them during the January 6th Capitol insurrection, was sentenced Friday to more than 14 years in prison. It's the longest sentence yet for a Capitol rioter. And in Deer Park, Texas, nine workers were hospitalized after a Shell petrochemical plant exploded Friday, spawning a massive fire that burned throughout the weekend. According to the Climate Justice Alliance, about 40 percent of U.S. residents live within a three-mile radius of high-risk chemical facilities where they face the threat of leaks, spills and explosions. A disproportionate share of those at high risk are from communities of color. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
We begin today's show in the South Texas city of Brownsville, along the U.S. border with Mexico, where eight people were killed and at least 10 more injured Sunday after an SUV drove into a group of people outside a migrant shelter. People say the driver is Hispanic and is in custody, but is not cooperating with their investigation into his motive. Most of the men killed were Venezuelan and had arrived in the U.S. days earlier, their identities still being determined by Customs and Border Patrol. One survivor said the driver was shouting obscenities and yelled that immigrants were invading the United States as he plowed into the group of men. This is a witness. We hope they will recover because they have families far away who count on them. We crossed mountains, marched, and passed migration. It was a long way to come here, and we fought hard. This comes as a number of people coming to the border to seek asylum is expected to continue to rise as the Trump-era Title 42 policy ends Thursday. A coalition of more than 240 rights groups is calling for the Biden administration not to use immigrant jails to address the expected increase. Just last month, two dozen tents were set on fire in a makeshift migrant camp in Matamoros, Mexico, across the border from Brownsville. And in March, a fire killed 40 men at a Mexican immigration jail in Ciudad Juarez across the border from El Paso, Texas. For more, we go to Weslaco, not far from Brownsville, Texas. We're joined by Jennifer Harbour, a longtime human rights lawyer along the U.S.-Mexico border, activist with the Angry Tias and Abuelas, who support asylum seekers in the area. Jennifer's late husband, Efraim Bamaka Velasquez, was a Mayan guerrilla commandante in Guatemala who was disappeared after he was captured by the Guatemalan army in the 80s. After a long campaign, she found there was U.S. CIA involvement in the cover-up of her husband's murder and torture. She's also the author of Truth, Torture, and the American Way, the History and Consequences of U.S. Involvement in Torture. Jennifer Harbury, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you tell us about the Bishop Enrique San Pedro Osanam Center and the people killed outside? Well, Amy, good morning to you, first of all, and I'm glad to be back. Um, all of us here that have been working so closely with the migrant community since 2017, many of us, um, are heartbroken today. Um, this certainly is a, I can only describe it as a hate crime. It was motivated by hate um, that has been, of course, fomented for a long time by the right wing and especially during the Trump administration. Um, these people had made it from Venezuela and other countries all the way across Mexico, which is a horrific journey, um, and managed to make it to the border. I work on the Reynosa side, Matamoro side, and have since 2017. And I would say close to 100% of the people I have interviewed have suffered either a rape, a vicious attack, a kidnapping, or worse on the way north. For these people to have fled Venezuela, made it all the way north, waited their turn, across legally across the bridge with the new app on their phone, spent the night at a shelter, and then were at a bus stop to go to the airport so they could reunite with their families at last um, and wait for the courts to decide on their immigration status, for them to be plowed down by a vicious American spurred on by hate. It's killing all of us, to be honest. All of us that have seen what they've been through, we've held their children 
We've held their hands when their children have died, when they've tried to tell their stories. These are such horrific backgrounds that most of us are pretty traumatized, too. And to have them needlessly and irrationally mowed down, literally, with an SUV, I just, I'm at loss of words. I wanted to ask you about the comment of the ACLU of Texas, noting the crash followed weeks of escalating anti-immigrant policy um, uh, that has been made by Texas lawmakers. And while the Biden administration considers imposing a new ban on the right to seek asylum in the United States when the Trump era um, Title 42 uh uh, ends on Thursday. In a statement, the ACLU wrote, President Biden, Texas Governor Abbott, and other elected officials continue to spread fear about immigration instead of treating the needs of people crossing the border as a humanitarian matter. Can you talk about the context this is all happening in? Yes, certainly there's been a ridiculous amount of fear-mongering and villainization, politically inspired, um, against migrants from the beginnings of the new migrant waves, you know, certainly starting in 2017, but even before. Remember, they're all rapists and murderers. In fact, a majority of them are families. The forced recruitment age by gangs in most of Central America, if your little boy is between eight and 10, they're going to come for him. One mother said no, and they chopped the child's finger fingers off with an axe to convince her. What we have to understand, these people are not coming here to buy a fancy refrigerator. This is an incredible migration north out of desperation to save the lives of their children, whether from political violence or from cartel violence, which is now out of control. I note that uh, for Reynosa and Matamoros and most of Tamaulipas, the United States Department of State has declared it a Category 4 insecurity. That makes it the same as Iraq and Afghanistan. When we tell people to wait in Mexico or go back where you came from, we're saying, why don't you just sit down and watch your children drop dead? We need to think about that. We need to think about it not just legally, but we need to think about that in terms of our national identity. This is us, a nation of immigrants, but for the Native Americans. We're telling these people they should sit and watch their children die. Why? You know, Jennifer, you were um, responsible for the release of that famous audio of babies yeah, crying, crying baby. in 2018. Yeah, I'm laughing only because it felt good to release that. But I think people need to see and hear the reality. I watched a, a short video clip last night of the scene when people were still lying on the ground, literally bleeding to death last night in front of Osana. And it, needless to say, it made me ill. I haven't recovered yet, but it was not the blood and the, and the incredible scene of cadavers lying helter-skelter where they've been thrown through the air by the, the van. The worst was the soundtrack accompanied by a shadow of a man holding his hands to his head and screaming for his brother. No, no, mano. No, hermano. No, manito. No, no, my brother. No, no. But the tone of utter despair, they were just about to reach safety with their families, and now the young man is dead. Um, I think most people like to read statistics 
They like dry press articles. If they, I invite any of them to come down here, people are pretty much scared to come down here now that uh, there was the shooting in Matamoros. But that's an hourly reality for all of the migrants. Someday history is going to show who the migrants really were and the fact that we knew perfectly well who they really were. Um, And then everyone's going to ask us, our children and our grandchildren, why did you turn a cold shoulder to them? This is a time for a moral and historical decision by all countries. There is an enormous migration for many, many reasons, including climate, but also including wild political and, uh, and cartel violence. If all of us really want to help with the migration issue, the first thing we should do is take the profits out of the drug trade. A Colombian priest at an event 20 years ago in San Francisco said, I know how unpopular a suggestion this is, but the only way to stop the violence that is killing us in Colombia now and having it pass all the way to your doorstep and into your cities, the only way is to legalize drugs, take the profit out and put the money into rehab centers and schools and and job training. You have to do it now before it's too late. Well, we clearly lost the drug war. It's time to legalize as much as that's horrifying to so many of us. But as with any other kind of narcotic or prohibited substance, people will get it. Now it's with fentanyl and with men with AR-15s on the playground, literally. Maybe it's time for us to wake up and get that shut down. While we're at it, Think a little bit about what we're talking about when we talk about recreational or party drugs. And Jennifer Harbury, um, the reason I introduced you the way I did going back in your history, what, 40 years, it's hard to believe, 40, 30 yeah. years, um, about the yeah. killing of your husband, um, Everardo. Um, and it turned out, because of your numerous hunger strikes almost dying in Guatemala, um, that it was revealed in U.S. documents that he was killed by CIA-backed informants uh, who murdered him uh, The Guatemalan in the Guatemala. Military, Can you trace the trajectory of U.S. support for right-wing regimes and death squads in Central America to what we're seeing today and end with May 11th, Thursday? Uh, President Biden is sending over 1,500 troops to the border. Your thoughts? Well, clearly we don't need more guns. The only people are getting used on is— you know, five feet tall women with babies and young men who are trying to refuse to work with, you know, for the drug cartels. The trajectory is this. The United States government backed during the dirty wars of the 80s. They backed the governments that were mostly oligarchy, large plantation owners and right wingers because our investments and financial interests squared with theirs. As a result, we sent in the CIA and de facto many more parts of our security forces into, for example, Guatemala. And we worked hand in glove with the death squads. That would be the military death squads that were working for the Guatemalan government. Um, And they carried out a campaign of genocide throughout Guatemala, all of the 80s and all of the 90s, and used torture and terror as a daily technique. That is documented in Memoria de Silencio, the United Nations Truth Commission report. 
that held Guatemala responsible as a government for 94% of the war crimes which had occurred. The URNG forces were found responsible for 3%. Um, After the war ended, most of those high-level military officials who were so well-trained in torture, terror, and corruption still needed a good income, and they were out of a job, um, and the CIA wasn't hiring as much anymore. The CIA, by the way, had paid $40,000 to one of my husband's torturers the same month that he was seen being tortured by that colonel, Colonel Julio Roberto Alperez. Yes, we uh, knew people were being tortured. We knew where the torture centers were, and we paid money to get more information. We conspired, aided, and abetted in torture and murder and disappearances. So after the war, where would they go? Well, they'd been, for a small fee, assisting Colombian drug lords for a very long time, including Mr. Alperez. Um, So they were well-trained in that, too. They formed their own cartels, one one of the best known being the Zeta cartel, which is operating out up here in northern Mexico along the border as well. And they trained them in torture techniques and the use of terror. And that, of course, is extremely... Extremely functional. So all of those people now so terrorize the general population that they are running northwards as refugees to our border. And all of us are are villainizing them as some kind of monsters for trying to do exactly what our own grandparents did. In my case, my father running from the from the Holocaust with his parents. Um, So they're running from a monster that we created. We could help lessen that current problem if instead of giving huge amounts of money to a corrupt government and watching it all flow back to the same drug lords, the same military units, et cetera, et cetera. If we um, if we would, for example, allow the DEA to arrest and and, uh, take people that were once CIA, CIA partners, Alperez is also known to have aided and abetted the murder of a U.S. citizen named Michael Devine. After the uproar in my husband's case, everyone was pointing at him and talking about what to do. The DEA has him on a corrupt officer list. But instead of being arrested, the CIA brought him to the United States secretly with his entire family and kept him in a safe place not far from their headquarters. When I tried to come forward and file Torture Victim Protection Act uh, case against him up there, um, needless to say, he was tipped off by our own government and fled back down to Guatemala, where he is now trying to put me in jail if I move forward with the case. Jennifer, we just have 20 seconds. All right. So that going through to Thursday, the day that Title 42 lapses. Mm -hmm. Um, we will not see a different storm or flood of people. There may be a flood, but that is because many people have left their home countries and they're hiding out wherever they can. If they know there's a chance, if they come to Matamoros or Brownsville or Juarez, that they'll be in a horrible danger, but they can at least get on the phone and arrange for a date, they're going to try. Going back or staying where they are or staying in Reynosa for any length of time or Matamoros is a death sentence, but they're going to try. This is a huge wave of desperate civilians trying to escape an impossible situation. 
the real question here is not how do we stop them? The real question is how do we all as an international community work together and take them in and stop the bonfire that's destroying them all? Jennifer Harbury, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Longtime human rights activist and lawyer based in the Rio Grande Valley, Texas, along the U.S.-Mexico border. Thank you so much for being with us. I know you're going off to a vigil in honor of the people killed and injured. Next up, we look at the coronation of King Charles III and calls for him to pay reparations and apologize for Britain's legacy of genocide and colonization. Back in 30 seconds. It will make or break him, so he's got to buy the best Cause he's a dedicated follower of fashion And when he does his little rounds Round the boutiques of London town Pursuing all the latest fashion trends Cause he's a dedicated follower of fashion Oh, yes, Dedicated follower of fashion by the kinks. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to Britain, where King Charles and Queen Camilla were officially crowned Saturday in a ceremony at Westminster Abbey, the first coronation in Britain in 70 years. Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, administered the coronation oath. The coronation oath has stood for centuries and is enshrined in law. Are you willing to take the oath? I am willing. Will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, your other realms and the territories to any of them belonging or pertaining, according to their respective laws and customs? I solemnly promise so to do. The things which I have here before promised, I will perform and keep. So help me God. Inside Westminster Abbey, police arrested at least 52 people, including numerous anti-monarchy activists who say they were detained before they even started protesting. This is Graham Smith of the anti-monarchist group Republic. No, we're very much a protester and we've been speaking to the police for four months. We've been very clear and candid about what our plans are. And we've also had five other protests around the country uh, within short distance of the king each time. And they, each protest has gone off without any problems at all. So there has never been any intention on our part to disrupt anything. And I think that they were hoping to stop us from staging a large peaceful protest on the edge of the coronation. I think that that was a spectacularly poor decision for all sorts of reasons, not least because there was no grounds for arresting us. And uh, it is a, an affront to democracy, an attack on our rights. Um, but also it's backfired in the sense that, you know, this has become a major news story over the coronation weekend. Ahead of King Charles' coronation, groups from 12 former British colonies wrote a letter demanding the new king pay reparations and apologize for Britain's legacy of genocide and colonization. We're joined now by Priya Gopal, an English professor at University of Cambridge, author of Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Descent. Her latest piece for Al Jazeera English is headlined, With Charles III Coronation, Colonialism is Coming Home to Roost. Well, Priya Gopal, can you start off by just talking about the resistance? 
assistance this weekend to the coronation. How widespread is this critical discussion, discussion critical of the king? Is this a common uh, topic this weekend? Um, and what that letter meant from the former colonies? Yeah. Hi, Amy. Um, I think there are two things to say about uh, resistance. Um, uh, one is that what was striking for those of us who have been here for many years and watched Jubilees and, and other celebrations is that the public celebrations were relatively muted. Um, I don't think that the crowds at, in London were quite as thick as they were even for um, the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. I think um, certainly where I live in Cambridge, celebrations yesterday, the street parties were quite muted. Um, and we know from a recent poll that support for the coronation or interest in the coronation was actually very low, with only about 9% of the population seriously um, committed to it and interested in it. In terms of criticism, um, there is quite widespread rumbling. Um, and of course, Republic, the campaign group you referred to, uh, uh, you know, tried to protest and they were stopped almost immediately. In the public sphere, in the media sphere, there is very, very little representation of anti-monarchy positions or even positions that are, you know, moderately critical of the monarchy or of the uh, uh, imperial system. So I, there's a kind of odd um, combination of increasing lack of interest in the monarchy, but a refusal on the part of the media, particularly the BBC, uh, to acknowledge that there is rising criticism and rising disinterest. The arrest of the protesters um, before they even began to protest, and there were two groups, by the way. One group was Republic, who were arrested before they had even uh, downloaded their placards. Another was a women's group called um, Night Stars, who were trying to hand out rape alarms. Um, and they were uh, also uh, hassled by the police and the rape alarms were seized and they were not allowed to distribute them. Now, this is connected to a very disturbing development in Britain, which is the Public Order Bill, which was recently passed by the Conservative government. And what it has done is it has given uh, the police sweeping powers to determine who can protest and how far and whether those protests should go ahead. The Metropolitan Police, the day before they arrested Graham Smith and others, um, actually said, astonishingly, that they would not allow anybody to undermine the celebrations. Note the language, not criminal activity, not disruption, but you would not even be allowed to undermine the celebrations, which means it can be anything from, you know, uh, looking grumpy might be seen as undermining the celebration. And I think we are in a situation where the police have been given extraordinary powers. And this is a very, very dangerous point where the media and the police are colluding in essentially suppressing criticism of the monarchy and what has been going on around the coronation. Professor Gopal, Britain was one of the largest, if not the largest, slave trader in the Atlantic in the 18th century. Can you talk about that history and how much of it is widely known? Um, 
there is very little public knowledge in Britain about either the empire or the years of enslavement. In recent years, uh, thanks to the efforts of young people who've been demanding reparations, uh, you know, repairing of their curriculum, um, and young people who've been demanding uh, more knowledge about slavery and empire, and there's a little bit more. But the British school curriculum is famously and woefully inadequate in terms of how much it teaches people about the things. Um, the other thing to say is that what is now very slowly starting to come out, which is the monarchy's own implication in enslavement and in colonialism, and I mean in two senses. One, individual members of the royal family over the centuries. Now we know that some of them had uh, direct benefits, like King William III, uh, from enslavement. But then the monarchy as an institution also has uh, uh, investments in these uh, different enterprises. We won't know about these until Charles agrees to let researchers access the royal archives, because one of the things that the monarchy has done, and this was especially virulent during Elizabeth II's time, was um, cover itself up in a kind of vast number of secrecy laws, which meant that researchers uh, to this day haven't been able to access relevant archives, which would actually show us the extent of the involvement of the monarchy and individual members of the monarchy uh, in enslavement. You had asked me at the beginning of the show about the, the letter from uh, indigenous uh, leaders and others uh, calling on Charles to acknowledge uh, the legacies of colonialism and enslavement. Now, this is actually a very, very big deal because this is a country that has been historically loath to talk about colonialism or enslavement, unless it is to say that, you know, Britain was the was the nation that freed uh, people from slavery. You're, you're only allowed to talk about that particular dimension of slavery. Now, the letter from indigenous and other leaders, uh, particularly uh, leaders from Australia, um, is very far reaching. It is asking not only for the return and repatriation of artifacts and human remains, which I think Britain is you know, slowly turning towards doing, but it's also asking Charles to do something that the monarchy has historically not done, which is make an acknowledgement of how consequential enslavement, dispossession, settlement, um, and other aspects of colonialism were. And I think that that until we see um, real movement in this direction, most of us will remain skeptical that any such far-reaching acknowledgement uh, is going to happen. Um, last question. We have less than a minute. With Charles III coronation, colonialism is coming home to roost, you write, Professor Gopal. Why don't we end with that, your explanation? Well, there are four things that distinguish colonialism. The enrichment of a small plutocratic class, the immiseration of a vast laboring class, an increasingly ferocious state that clamps down on protest and heightened racialization where outsiders are demonized. And all four of these aspects are present in Britain today. We also have, um, as you're, uh, along the lines of what your previous guest was talking about, tremendous demonization and hostility and racialization of asylum seekers here, while ordinary British people are being uh, made very, very poor. I mean, there are vast numbers of people unable to heat their homes and unable to feed their children. And we see 
you know, looking at Britain today, if you set aside the small class of very, very, very wealthy billionaires, uh, we see a very large number of very impoverished people. Uh, and you see Britain looking much like one of the colonies that it left behind in the middle of the 20th century. Priya Gopal, I want to thank you for being with us. English professor at University of Cambridge, author of Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Descent. We'll link to your piece uh, in Al Jazeera with Charles III, Coronation Colonialism is Coming Home to Rest. Next up, we look at the growing calls for new ethics rules for the Supreme Court justices as more information emerges about Justice Thomas's secretive dealings with a Republican billionaire. Back in 30 seconds. My Dreams Come True by Hall & Oates. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Calls are growing for new ethics rules for Supreme Court justices as more information emerges about Justice Clarence Thomas's secretive financial dealings with the Republican activist billionaire Harlan Crow. Last month, ProPublica revealed Thomas had failed to report frequent luxury trips paid for by Crow, including trips aboard Crow's private yacht and jet. Thomas also failed to disclose he'd sold property to Crow, including a home where Thomas's mother now lives rent-free. In addition, Crow paid for the private school tuition for Thomas's grandnephew, including a year at Hidden Lake Academy in Georgia, where the tuition is over $6,000 a month. Also, The Washington Post has reported conservative judicial activist Leonard Leo arranged for the Judicial Education Project to secretly pay Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, $80,000 for consulting work over a decade ago without mentioning her name. Months later, the nonprofit filed an amicus brief in the landmark case Shelby County versus Holder, in which Clarence Thomas cast the deciding five to four vote that gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Despite these revelations, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts has refused calls to issue new ethics rules for justices. And then we've got the case of his wife getting over $10 million for being a, hunt, hunt, a headhunter for elite firms. This is Chief Justice Roberts' wife. Um, and these law firms often have cases before the Supreme Court. We're joined now by Dahlia Lithwick, who covers the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. Her recent book is titled Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. Joining us from Seattle, where she spoke at the Crosscut Ideas Festival. Dahlia, thanks for joining us again on Democracy Now! Can you respond to this avalanche of information, uh, starting with Justice Thomas, but not ending with him? It's such an amazing story, Amy, and it is really, in some sense, surprising to me that a story that I thought would be a one-day story when we heard the super yacht story and the travel story has turned into weeks of sustained focus as investigative reporters for a whole bunch of outlets essentially say, but that's not all. And I think you're quite right. The capstone of it, in some sense, were the stories at the very end of last week, both about Harlan Crow paying for Clarence Thomas's grandnephew's tuition, never, ever disclosed, despite the fact that Justice 
Thomas earlier in his career had disclosed that he was getting his tuition paid for. So he knew this required disclosure. And then, in some sense, the thermonuclear story that came uh, last Thursday night that, as you said, Leonard Leo, who is sort of the, the front man for a whole bunch of groups that have worked to take over the court— was quite literally directing Kelly uh, Con Kellyanne Conway to put money in Ginny Thomas's pocket and included a note that said, quote, no mention of Ginny, of Ginny, of course. He knew this was wrong. Nobody disputes it's wrong. Now what we're really doing is haggling about the price. I want to go to Senate Judiciary Chair Dick Durbin, interviewed on CNN by Jake Tapper Sunday. So because of the separation of powers, I believe, you're not willing to subpoena the Chief Justice, John Roberts. Um, you've indicated that it's like unlikely you're going to be able to pass any legislation that would uh, impose an ethics code on the court. Uh, and you've said you don't think the Justice Department should investigate Justice Thomas's actions. So in essence, aren't you kind of throwing up your hands and saying the su Supreme Court isn't really accountable to anybody but themselves? There's nothing you can do, even though you're the, you're the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee? Not at all, Jake. Let me just tell you the bottom line is this. Everything is on the table. Day after day, week after week, more and more disclosures about Justice Thomas. We cannot ignore them. The thing we're going to do first, obviously, is to gather the evidence, the information that we need to draw our conclusions. I'm not ruling out anything. So, Dahlia Lithwick, if you can respond. It, we're in such a weird moment, Amy, historically, where, for some reason, Congress has taken the posture that they can't do anything to regulate the court, and the court— conveniently takes the same posture, that this is a separation of powers issue, a judicial independence issue. It's really useful to remember, and Professor Steve Laddick at UT Austin has been making this point for weeks, that Congress has regulated the court's conduct for centuries. Con Congress has determined the jurisdiction of the justices. For a long time, Congress forced the Supreme Court justices to, quote, ride circuit, travel around the country and hear cases. Congress has set the number of seats on the court. So the notion that Congress has no business intervening with how the judiciary works, because that would be a separation of powers conflict, is simply wrong. And I think what you were hearing there from Senator Durbin is— an understanding that now is not the time to stand back and let the court say more or less what you talked about in your last segment. The judiciary is a mon monarchy. It cannot be regulated by anyone other than itself. It seems as though between the hearing we had last week at the Judiciary Committee and the conversation we're hearing over the weekend, that members of the Senate are beginning to understand that it is going to be incumbent on them to step in and issue some ethics rules or demand that the court issue uh, ethics rules for itself. That's the Angus Bing bill, uh, Angus King, Susan Collins bill. But that the notion that there's absolutely nothing that the other branches of government can do because the court is made of magic and unicorn and rainbows, I think that era is now over. Now, federal judges are much more strictly regulated. Is that right? And aren't there judges across the country that are demanding that the Supreme Court abide by similar rules? It's been such an amazing uh, revelation. We heard over the weekend that there was a lower federal court judge, a district court judge, who was asking the body that uh, the judicial conference that enforces rules to do something about Justice Thomas a decade ago. So, yes, it is absolutely true that lower court judges 
um, are bound by really strict rules. You can't buy them a cup of coffee. I know federal judges who won't get in an elevator with someone who's got business before them. They are very careful to police themselves because they understand, and this is in the Federalist Papers, that the only power the judiciary has is public approbation and that that is an incredibly fragile thing. And so the idea that the chief justice put forth when he said he was not going to come testify before that hearing last week, that somehow it's, uh, uh, you know, unreasonable to ask judges to police themselves or that they should be left to determine their own ethics rules. It's not just a question of, you know, this looks kind of hinky. It's that they are undermining the integrity of the judicial branch. Every judge except the Supreme Court justices have to abide by the ethical canons and by the statutes. The notion that there's some sphere of privacy in Clarence Thomas's personal life or that Leonard Leo said, oh, you know, we didn't disclose this donation, this uh, payment to Ginny Thomas because the gossips were going to go after Clarence Thomas. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Mm -hmm. They are meant to use these laws to guide their conduct, and they choose not to. Dahlia, let's talk about the specific issue of student debt, because before the Supreme Court is the case of student debt, argued in February. Uh, Clarence Thomas, Chief Justice Roberts expressed extreme skepticism. Um, even this week, the debt ceiling issue uh, could stop all kind of student loan forgiveness. So it's extremely significant uh, that um, Clarence Thomas had— his grandnephew, who he treated as a son, they sort of adopted early on, um, this Republican activist billionaire paying over $6,000 a month. Are we talking about uh, crossing a line between civil and criminal liability here? It's really difficult to know what <clears throat> uh, Harlan Crow could be on the hook for, Amy. I certainly think we are crossing the line between ethical rules and corruption. And it's worth noting right here that the Supreme Court has been one of the largest players in changing the definition of what corruption is, demanding that <clears throat> we talk in terms of quid pro quo corruption, which is a really narrow definition. That's the Supreme Court's doctrine in recent decades. But I think under your question, there is this question of how is it possible that Clarence Thomas is ruling on the loan forgiveness uh, uh, case that Harlan Crow's wife has a uh, it gives to an organization, the Manhattan Institute, that has an amicus brief in that case, and that, as you say, the argument seems to be personal charity for me, so my grandnephew can go to a fancy private school, but not for thee, all of you who need debt relief. So this is really like a, a, a layer cake of misconduct, and at every single layer of the cake, it is astonishing that Justice Clarence Thomas, who clearly has vested interests in every level, does not recuse. I want to ask you one last question, uh, not related to this court, uh, but it's a very sensitive question about Senator Dianne Feinstein. Um, there is very little discussion right now in the media of her mental condition. The idea that we're talking about she has a case of shingles and people are ruthless if they're saying she should resign, of course, if she just had shingles, that would be a ridiculous demand. But this issue of her mental competence and why I'm including this in this discussion, she sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and because of her absence, um, Democrats have not been able to approve judges. Um, 
Can you respond? Last year, there was a whole discussion, even in the media. The San Francisco Chronicle last year talked about an unnamed lawmaker, California lawmaker, who expects to have an, a deep uh, policy discussion with Dianne Feinstein. Instead, the lawmaker said they had to reintroduce themselves to Feinstein multiple times during interaction that lasted several hours. Uh, and that— um, Congress member said she was an intellectual and political force not that long ago, and that's why my encounter with her was so jarring, because there was no trace of that. Um, you have Nancy Pelosi accusing um, Ro Khanna of being uh, sexist for saying that she should step down. But are we looking at a level of mental deterioration that um, is paralyzing the Democrats in the Senate? Should she step down? It's such an echo of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg conversation that we were having a few years ago. This question of how does somebody determine for themselves, uh, as objectively as they can, uh, that they should step down because they're imperiling the very institution they purport to love. I can't claim to have any insider information on Senator Feinstein's uh, cognitive state. I read the same articles you did. Rebecca Traster had a phenomenal uh, piece last year making some of these same claims. I think I would say what, what uh, I think deeply on this issue is to cloud it up with questions of ageism or sexism or uh, questions of, you know, attacks on the senator is to really, I think, obscure the fact that, as you said, as a result of blue slips, as a result of the filibuster, as a result of her current condition, we're not getting judges confirmed as quickly as we can. She issued a statement last week saying they're going along at a fast clip, but they're really, in some ways, we're not getting judges confirmed at rates that we need to see. And it seems to me that that's a moment for soul-searching above and beyond competency to say, how am I hampering this institution from doing the essential work of government? Dahlia Lithwick, I want to thank you for being with us, covering the courts and the law for Slate, hosts the podcast Amicus. This is Democracy Now! We end today's show with an update on Oklahoma death row prisoner Richard Glossop, whose May 18th execution date was just stayed by the Supreme Court Friday, pending the outcome of two cases he has pending at the high court. Justice Neil Gorsuch recused himself, likely because he'd previously dealt with the case as a lower court judge. This comes after Oklahoma's Republican Attorney General Gettner Dremond filed a joint a motion with Glossop's defense team to halt his May 18th execution, saying he didn't receive a fair trial. Glossop's maintained his innocence for more than a quarter of a century, the ninth time he had an execution date that's been put on hold. For more, we're joined in Oklahoma City by Sister Helen Prejean, Richard Glossop's spiritual advisor, one of the world's most well-known anti-death penalty activists. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Sister Prejean. You learned of the stay for Glossop on Friday, June just after visiting him in prison. Can you tell us if you heard how he responded and what's your response? Well, first, my response is I have never heard of an attorney general confess to error in what the trial courts had done in Oklahoma about Richard Glossop and eight votes to grant a writ of certiorari and grant a stay. 
Richard, we had been visiting earlier and I'd left and he was just really worried because he was going to need to turn over to the prison officials all of his personal things, his cards, his letters, his photographs before he was taken into that waiting cell, awaiting execution, which is a torture chamber for him. He, they, he was called to the door by the warden. He went only to find out, oh, Richard, you got to stay from the Supreme Court. So it was just so deliriously happy. The way this happened, what made that attorney general do this? It's the hard, good work of Don Knight, the lawyer in his case, that not only pursued justice in the courts of Oklahoma, but also began to communicate with legislators and the political side of the death penalty. And these are all, 60 of them, GOP pro-death penalty legislators that Don works with, educates, then they start doing their own investigation about Richard's case, visit him, see him, meet him personally, and become very, very committed. And then in that number become of the attorney general calls them. I've been with Richard two times where he came really within minutes the last time of execution. The man has gone through torture, but it's refreshing to have for the first time an attorney general confess error in a case because normally prosecution and the, the attorney general, everybody in the state just holds fast, refuses to acknowledge error and lets people be executed. So, Sister Helen Pajan, what happens next? This is a temporary stay of execution. What happens? Yeah, well, probably it'll be a 30 day at first. But I'm really hopeful that when you have eight justices taking a writ of certiorari on a case and you have prosecution refusing now to prosecute, then it means that I believe what will happen is they'll remand the case. They'll overturn what the Court of Appeals did in Oklahoma and remand the case to the trial court again for another trial. And they're not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole because they have exposed through investigation the corruption that's been present in the prosecution of destroying evidence, uh, of allowing lies by the chief witness, uh, supposedly that Richard Glossop masterminded it. They allowed those lies in court, uh, hid from the jury that Justin Sneed, the one who claimed with, I mean, the videos show how the detectives just pumped that information to him that Richard Glossop was the mastermind. Justin Sneed had admitted from the beginning he murdered this guy. So all that stuff would come out in a new trial. I believe Richard's going to walk out a free man. And of course, but Justin, you know what, Amy? Go ahead. Amy, just all the other guys on death row that are lined up for execution. They don't have teams like this working for them. What is going to happen to them? So my work is to go to the American public. We have to bring people close to the suffering, the needless suffering, that we can keep our society safe without killing human beings. So eight of them came in for a visit while I was visiting with Richard, and they don't have those teams helping them. So they're going to Richard saying, can you get us, can you get us lawyers to help us? And I just feel for them. We got to change the whole thing in the United States to get the death penalty off the table. We can't handle it. 
Uh, as of uh, January 12th, 2023, Oklahoma had 39 prisoners on death row, 11 scheduled to die this year. Um, Sister Helen Prejean, you're having a justice rally, I think, is scheduled for May 9th. What is being called for there? We just have 20 seconds. Then we're going to do a post-show to talk about your history with um, yeah, right. Richard Glossop. Yeah. So the rally, which we encourage people to come to, is going to celebrate what happened with Richard, because it's a lot of work and, and courageous legislators standing up for him. But to look toward the reforms that this bipartisan committee has has recommended for the legislature about the death penalty in Oklahoma. Forty reforms. They've done none of them. So we got to look toward reforming the whole system. And that's what the rally is going to focus on. Well, Sister as Helen well Prejean, I want to thank you so much for being with us. We'll do part two. Put it at democracynow.org. Sister Helen Prejean, anti-death penalty activist, author of Dead Man Walking. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.